This is from Mark 11, 22-24. Have faith in God, truly I tell you. If you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Thank you. And that's from Mark 11, chapter 22, verses 22, 23, and 24. <laughs> if that's interesting to you. Um, so when I, was, when I was a young man, I say that with some irony, hopefully I'm still young now, I was in a relationship with someone, and that relationship lasted for a couple years. And it was a very serious relationship, even though I was young, I was in my early 20s, it was a very intense and involved sort of relationship. I truly believe that that, at that naive stage in my life that I would be with this person forever, um, that they would be mine and I would be theirs. And so much so that, you know, when things start to fall apart and change direction, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't even, like, comprehend what that meant or what that looked like. Every time I tried in my mind to entertain the possibility of a future without this person, um, it was almost like I was trying to, like, solve some sort of paradox or I was looking at an impossible math equation, it, my mind felt like it literally was going to break. Like it just could not um, process this information. In the final days of that relationship, my life was um, just in an overall state of disarray and, and, and bleakness. Um, I, I was out of work at the time. Uh, I couldn't find a job despite um, my best efforts. I had was going through some, some serious health problems. I had dropped like 30 pounds in three months. It was basically like, I look like a broom with a head on it. Um, <laughs> and I spent a lot of that time just in this malaise, this general depressed stupor. And one day, I, I suppose I reached some sort of boiling point and I decided that I needed to, to confront God about this, right? And so my parents are ministers. They had this church that was just a couple blocks down from where we lived, our apartment. And I went there um, to pray, to petition God um, that all that I wanted to turn well could turn well, that all that I wanted and needed would come to pass. And I was there in this, in this little sanctuary, which is basically a little office space, white walls and fluorescent lights. Uh, it's not like this, but similar. And um, as I was praying, the words and the sounds I was making and my body movements began to sort of increase into this manic state where I, I really felt as though every ounce of energy I had in me was being poured out of me. If you're into X-Men, the X-Men comics, there's a character named Cyclops, right? He's this character who shoots laser, they're not laser beams, I'm sorry if you're, that offended you for not being actually factually true, but uh, he shoots kinetic energy or something like this out of his eyes, right? A concussive force is what I, is what I read in Wikipedia. And if you, um, Ever read the very first X-Men? I actually was into this when I was younger, so I remember getting the very, very first ever X-Men comic, and it's you know written in like cartoonish ways, and it's it's outdated. But um, there's this part in that comic where Cyclops is trying to break through Magneto's Magneto's this villain. He's trying to break through Magneto's like 
force field, right? And so he's shooting the beam at the force field. And I didn't know this was possible because in the later comics, Cyclops doesn't really ever do this, but in that first one, for some reason, he shoots with such an intensity that you see almost like his whole, fa his whole face, like the, la the not the laser, but the, the concussive force beam is coming out of his whole face. And his whole face is engulfed in this thing and it shoots and it breaks through. And as it breaks through, he's so um, exhausted from that, uh, he faints. That is an analogy of the way that I was praying uh, in the moment. It was um, what I would call a sort of a whole face prayer. Um, at the end of which I was, I, I, I really was so weak. I, I didn't faint, but I was so weak. I barely uh, mustered the strength to, to get my phone out of my pocket and call my brother um, to come pick me up. And then we went to go eat um, burgers somewhere. And that's the very pedestrian ending to that story. We're starting a series right now the, that I've titled Could Have Moved Mountains, right? And it's obviously a, a play on the passage that Skip just read. Um, but the title is actually a song I stole from uh, a band called A Silver Mount Zion, which is an offshoot of a band called Godspeed You Black Emperor. If you know those bands, I applaud you. They're not very popular bands, but I suggest you give them a, a try at some point. Couldn't Move Mountains, this series is... You know, I conceived of it as a series about sort of faith. It's about faith. It's about doubt. It's about um, the question of making things happen in our lives, of this quote-unquote mountain-moving thing, right? This idea that um, we want for something that is impossible to happen. The formulation that Jesus gives in this passage is, I think, a very strange one in terms of how he paints mountain-moving, as it were, to happen. He basically says, you have to have faith, you must reject doubt, have no doubt, and if your faith is pure and strong without doubt, then you have the power to do this, right? If you have that kind of faith, what you pray will come to be. The moment of uh, my face praying, my, you know, that intense moment I just shared, the subsequent collapse, the, it sort of marked for me a distinct moment in my life where... Um, I started to really relate very differently to this picture that, that I just presented, this picture of faith without doubt equals the power to move mountains. Because the way that Jesus frames it, it's almost like you can't defeat it, right? Let's say, for example, you want something to happen, um, and it doesn't. You pray, and you pray, and you're like, please, God, please. You do everything you can. It doesn't happen, right? Um, then it's really easy to be like, oh, I must have had some doubt. I must have screwed this formula up somehow, right? Or... You can also argue that you were looking at a wrong mountain or the mountain is a metaphor and it, it did actually move, but you just haven't seen it yet or something like that, you know. Or what you thought was a mountain actually wasn't a mountain or whatever. And so you see there are ways in which if whatever you want doesn't happen, it's easy for us to justify that, oh, Jesus was right. We just didn't do it right. But it occurred to me um, through experiences like the one I shared and even more so many, many in my life where people have prayed and Faithful people have truly prayed for things to happen that didn't, um, much more serious than a relationship. We're talking life and death here, that the enterprise in which Jesus is asking us to embark on is almost impossible. A faith that does not doubt. I mean, thinking about what that could look like, again, is sort of like um, trying to solve a paradox or it's like looking at an impossible math equation, right? Sort of makes the brain find it hard to comprehend. And yet, I wish that it was true in some sense. 
there are many ways that we could look at this text and sort of play around with it and uh, you know, give explanations that uh, overcome the difficulties in it. But we are also undeniably confronted by the fact that there are mountains in our lives that we want moved, right? That there are things in our lives that we want with everything we have to happen. As we're all sort of collectively praying for um, Neil's son, his name is Hans, by the way, Hans Amos Ellingson. Um, you know, I wish so much for him to be healed, right? That uh, all the prayers that we're giving and prayers from, I know are happening all over the country, even my mother in California uh, is out there, she's praying, my brother, that all those prayers could come together. It would be awesome if they could collect together at the foot of this mountain and little by little bit shove it and shove it and shove it until it fell right into the ocean. And then we would find there uh, Hans doing well, of strong mind, a strong body. Um, those are the kind of mountains that are real ones, right? Real ones that are, we're confronted with um, that we want to move. Now, this is a sermon series, so that means that I'm not going to do all the work of answering how we might do that today. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to begin by putting into some context, putting in our minds certain questions and motivations um, presented by a text like this, presented by an idea like this, right? Uh, ones that I have said, I know that you know, everyone here probably has their own associations with this sort of thing. My hope for us all and myself as we sort of run through what it means to have faith, what it means to have doubt, what it means to um, hope for things that seem impossible, uh, that we try and suspend our beliefs to a certain extent. What I mean by that is we try and approach this without prejudice. You know, I think that we all have certain prejudices when it comes to religious matters or matters of uh, faith and healing and doubt and um, and, there, and many of them are hard-won prejudices, right? Important prejudices. Prejudice is probably the wrong word to use, but they are things that we hold. But I ask that we sort of, what would it look like if we could not rush to judgment and efforts? Right? Because I think the main reason, well, not the main reason, but one of the real important reasons we're here, important reasons of church is, um, is that we shouldn't just come for a mere validation of what we already believe, right? Uh, we have to try to shake things up. Um, and so that's what I'm going to try to do now. All right. So today, as a, I won't talk much longer, I promise. Um, I wanted to lay out basically three interpretations of faith. It's going to be a little academic. It's going to be a little teachy. Um, and I know some people hate that, you know, but uh, I'm going to try to make it as entertaining as possible. Um, and they're short, so just let's, let's try to pay attention together. Okay, so three different uh, orientations to faith. All these are related to one another. There's like interlap. Um, however, they all are different in, in the ways that they want to sort of approach this idea of faith and uh, approach what it means to have a fulfilled faith. The first one is what I would call uh, an ecclesiastical faith, right? Ecclesiastical meaning pertaining to the church. It's generally a, a faith that's defined by the historical church, by doctrines, by creeds, by things handed down by people who died a long time ago. 
And it's exemplified in its practice in participation within the church itself. So uh, one faith is a belief, this faith is a belief that the teachings of the church are what we ought to believe and we ought to do what the church tells us to do. Now, I think that the first thing that comes to mind in this regard is something like Catholicism, right? Like, oh, the Catholic Church is like that. Um, that is true, but I think that it's also true in many strains of Protestantism as well. To our modern ears, ecclesiastical faith, I think, is uh, something that we don't like, right? It, it hits us in a strange way. Like, we, we're not, in, you know, these days we're not, like, into, like, old authority. We're not into, like this old stuff with backwards views about the world, telling us how to like live our lives. Like, we're not into that. And so uh, a church, a faith in, constructed like this, I think is, is uh, problematic. However, I do think that, well, I do agree with a lot of that, by the way, there is a beauty in a way that it does it as well. And so, for example, let me give you two examples of what might be good about an ecclesiastical faith. One is that in our modern context, um, there are a lot of people who now think that we lack the vocabulary, we lack the ability really to talk about theological things very well. That no longer are we able to explain to someone like, this is God, God means this. Um, because the world has changed so much because our scientific context, because of our cultural context, uh, words fail essentially. And so uh, I've met a lot of people who are into this. They basically will now argue that practice, doing stuff is the only way for us to uh, get into religious things. So, for example, communion. We did communion today, right? Their idea is that you must participate. You don't try to explain too much. You don't try to say, like, this is what we're doing. People just do it. You just go into the ritual, and you do the ritual, and you do the ritual over and over, every Sunday or whatever it may be. You don't really know why you're doing it, but one, at some moment, hopefully, there's going to be, like, a click, and you're going to be like, oh, shit, this makes sense to me now. Um, I know what, how God is involved in this, like there is a way that that concept will come to you out of the practice of doing um, in a way that words can never achieve. I'm not super into that idea, but I understand its, um, its argument, right? The other way that this faith, the ecclesiastical faith is interesting is I think, um, again, shown in its, the way that its actions, it's action oriented in how it presents itself. So I've been reading this book recently, Brothers Karamazov. Um, it's an old, great book classic, written by Dostoevsky, a uh, Russian guy in, back in the day, sometime back in the day, 1800s, is that right? Yeah. Um, I don't concern myself with dates and stuff like that. Uh, it's a great book, anyway. And in this passage I was reading recently, this woman comes to an elder of the church. The elder is like, he's like this saint dude. Like He's regarded as like basically like one removed from Jesus, right? Like whatever he says is like the truth and he can like touch people and like crazy shit will happen to them. Like that's the elder. And so the woman comes to the wise elder for guidance because she says to him, I don't, I don't think I believe in heaven anymore. I don't believe in like immortality because there's no evidence for it. I don't have any evidence. How can I believe in this thing? And his answer to her is, uh, one cannot prove anything here but it is possible to be convinced by the experience of active love. Try to love your neighbors actively and tirelessly. The more you succeed and loving, uh, the more you'll be convinced of the existence of God and the immortality of your soul. If you reach complete selflessness in the love of your neighbor, then undoubtedly you will believe and no doubt will even be able to enter, and no doubt will even be able to enter into your soul. This has been tested, it is certain. So again, there is this sort of like um, 
He's not going to explain to you. He's not going to try to like tell you how uh, uh, there is proof. He's going to say, do this thing. And in doing this thing, uh, this truth will reveal itself to you, right? I think that for me is the uh, positive outtake of uh, ecclesiastical faith. The second faith orientation is, uh, is one that understands faith not to be about beliefs. And it's not really about the church uh, telling you what to believe. But this faith is a faith of what it means to be human, about the human condition itself. I think we've all heard some iteration of this phrase, right? This, uh, we all worship something. That's a quote. It's um, used by everyone from Ralph Waldo Emerson to David Foster Wallace to some other terrible people out there. Uh, I'm just kidding. Those are two great people. I didn't mean that. that way. Uh, David Foster Wallace and Ralph Waldo Emerson. And uh, I'm trying to think, like, I'm pretty sure I've heard, like, uh, stadium preachers say stuff like that as well. But um, religion, God, Christ, blah, 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 these are sort of objects of worship out of many, right? And uh, one could argue that there are better objects than other objects, and one could argue that maybe there's one good object. But the point is, is that uh, inherently as human beings, we have this thing, this need to worship something, this need to um, have faith in something, as it were. And so, in theology, at least, the most famous example in modern times is uh, a phrase by Paul Tillich, who we've talked about in this space many times. Paul Tillich calls faith ultimate concern, um, which is, again, faith is not a belief, but it's an, a way we actually just are, a state of seeking something that will fulfill our lives, basically. A task of finding that thing that is very serious to us, that we take on with ultimate seriousness, and something that is of an ultimate concern to us, we believe will bring us ultimate fulfillment. So you can imagine ways in which uh, that, you can have secular manifestations of that, religious manifestations of that. The bottom line is this is a faith that is not you know, opposed to sort of uh, the ecclesiastical faith. This one that says we're all human beings. That means we have faith. That means we have this thing, uh, this desire to find meaning in the world. The last one, I want to talk about um, is a bit stranger, right? It's a bit of a more private, more personal, um, and I would argue perhaps more difficult uh, definition of faith than these other two. Uh, it's a faith that you can also maybe de define as very Protestant in nature. And what I mean by that is, you know, please don't fall asleep for like 10 seconds. When the Catholic and the Protestant church split up back in the day, uh, there was, a, there was a, a fight, right? There was this idea that there were things being done wrong. And so one of them, a rejection of uh, what, you know, the ecclesiastical church, the rejection of authority as that which confers upon us being faithful or being saved or whatever it may be. And so religion then became really personal. It became about your relationship with God or it became about you reading the Bible and interpreting it for yourself. It became about you finding meaning for your, your own life. And so this is a type of faith kind of out of that offshoot, right? A rejection of obedience to powers, uh, the powers that be. And for me, this is exemplified in my favorite philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, who, uh, if we've ever had coffee or hung out, I'm, I apologize. I've probably talked to you about it many times. But um, he's a Danish philosopher who was also in the 1800s. And he was doing his work uh, in relation to basically two things that really made him upset, right? One was the state-sponsored Danish church, the Church of Denmark. And the other was a philosophical climate, climate that 
in that time was really had this great excitement, this belief that reason, this, this thing called reason, was coming to fulfill itself in the world, that it was going to uh, take over all things, right? And, and that sounds very vague. I don't want to get into all technicalities, but if you like are into Kant or Hegel, that sort of thing, basically he hated those guys, right? And so for faith, for Kierkegaard, was not about these two things. It was not about knowledge. It wasn't about reason. It wasn't about objective truth. It wasn't about the teachings of the church. Faith was something that was purely subjective. It was purely within oneself, by one's own convictions. Now that sounds kind of not that interesting, I think. But what's more, what is interesting about it, I think, is this. He was so convinced that it was internal that you couldn't even explain to somebody else uh, what this faith was. No one could look at you and be like, you're a faithful person, you know, because you couldn't even begin to describe to somebody what that faith was like for you. And if that's true, this faith becomes like, you've heard this also famous phrase, right? The leap of faith that comes, uh, a lot of it comes out of Kierkegaard's philosophy, right? That faith is sort of this leap that we take, um, this leap to believe in impossible things, again, things that don't make sense in a rational view. Um, I think it's a mistake to paint this sort of faith as an irrational faith. If it's against reason, it must be irrational. I think that's false. I think you, would, you could also argue that it is a faith that is beyond reason, right? That takes reason into itself, um, understands reason's limitations, and um, moves past it in some way. So this faith is wholly personal. It's difficult. Um, and it's also dangerous, right? This, Kierkegaard's most famous book, Fear and Trembling, um, is a really crazy book. And if you read it, read it in a certain, con a certain light, it's a really dangerous book, right? Um, Fear and Trembling is all about the story of Abraham in Genesis, right? This story is Abraham's hanging out. He has this son who, after like decades of t toiling for this son, finally has this son. He's so happy. And then God's like, yo, you got to go kill your son. Go sacrifice your son. And Abraham's like, all right. And so he takes the son, goes up to this mountaintop, he's about to take a knife to uh, Isaac's throat, and then God, this angel's like, yo, yo, no, I was just kidding. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> I just wanted to see if you would, and clearly you were going to, so please don't do it. <laughs> but he takes that story, and to Kierkegaard, that is the sort of exemplar of faith. The story of a man so possessed with an idea, so convinced that it's true, so convinced that it's from God, that he is about to go and do this insane thing and kill his own son, right? Um, Kierkegaard goes through his whole thing in the book about how he couldn't even, I mean, he didn't, he didn't tell his wife, like, what's he going to tell his wife? You know, like, yo, God told me I got to go kill our son. I'll be back in like two days or whatever. Like, sh she wouldn't, she'd be like, you're insane, right? Like, that's the sort of nature in which faith is so internal to us. It has this danger that we don't know almost if we're hearing the voice of God or the voice of the devil, right? Uh, rife with ethical problems, perhaps, right? It is very true. Um, in every class I've ever been in that talked about this book, someone will inev inevitably raise their hand and talk about suicide bombers and extremism and that sort of thing and whether or not Kierkegaard is making a case that they're right. I think that's the wrong question in some ways uh, because a question of... Faith is outside of the ethical question, at least as it pertains to one's own personal conviction. Um, so this idea is, is a dangerous one. At the same time, I think 
a lot of people are compelled by this picture of faith because it it's somehow it's the most individualistic it's the most wrought with a uh, sort of convicted passion right um, and a possibility as well so that's a little bit of a survey of um, historical faith things. I'm not going to talk about today like this is the best one or like this is the way we should think about it. I, I don't have an answer for you on that regard. Rich is actually, um, who's a friend of mine, whose wife is a pastor somewhere in Chicago at a church whose name shall not be uttered here. Um, <laughs> we'll preach next week uh, about this topic as well. Um, but my goal is, my hope and my goal is that uh, as we do this, about, about three, four weeks, is we're going to take this faith thing and I've given you a little general survey of like aspects of it, and then we're going to break it down a little bit more and, um, and then come back to this question of like, okay, so can faith actually move mountains? Is that possible for us? And what does that look like? Again, my, my hope is that as we do this, and also for myself, uh, is that if we're not prejudiced at, with an answer that we think is already true, uh, we might be surprised to uh, come to some sort of different conclusion, right? I think um, that's, a, that's a battle I'm fighting within myself right now because I sort of already have an answer for you, right? This idea of like what this looks like. But even, even for me, as I'm doing this, I'm trying to challenge myself not to think that's right. Um, and so hopefully you can do that as well. We generally will have a discussion as a, after a little talk like this. And since we're a small group, it's gonna, I wanna just do like a big group discussion, which means that as I ask these questions, you're welcome to sort of at your tables as I'm standing here all together, um, say what you think, answer the questions, ask more questions or whatever it may be. My two questions are this. One is, what, are, what do we identify right now as um, sort of mountains in our lives that we want moved? They can be personal, um, like the story I shared. They can be uh, about people like Neil and other people in our lives who are going through tough times. They can be global. We can talk about all the things in the world that, <laughs> that need to change. Um, so whatever mountain is for you that's like been something you've been thinking about for a little while, um, feel free to share that. My other question would be something like, do any of these three um, orientations of faith, again, which, you know, granted that there, I, there could be a lot more and um, they could have been explained differently as well. Uh, do any of them resonate with you? Do any of them speak to you as a thing that you're like, oh, I, I like that part of it or I like that idea in this way or this thing is... Um, something that I've gone through and speaks to me or whatever. Um, we could share a little bit about that as well.